So as you saw from the video, Lee Strobel's case for Christ, he's asking the question, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? And that's our question for us this morning. And um, over the last few weeks, we've been doing a study on God on film and looking at movies, and I felt like this is a, a great way to, to end this series. Next week, we'll delve into Jonah. So I know that's an exciting book for some of you. So get out your Jonah books and, and read away in preparation for the next month. But Jesus has been Jesus in the last few chapters. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16. And so what I mean by Jesus being Jesus is he's in his ministry and he's doing some healing. He's um, been feeding the 5,000. He's fed 4,000. Um, I mean, all kinds of, he's just walked on water as we talked about last week. And so Jesus is doing things that, that point him out as different from, other, from any other rabbi of the time or before. And so people would call him rabbi. But he would always teach with the greater authority. As we look through the New Testament, time after time, the crowd would say, hey, that's a great rabbi, but he teaches with a, a greater authority than any other rabbi before. And so here we have Jesus doing miracles. He's teaching with great authority. And then in Matthew chapter 16, he pulls his disciples away on a retreat. And so he just fed 5,000 in chapter 14 and walked on water. And then we see that again he, he feeds 4,000. And so after he's feeding the 4,000, people began asking for a sign. And so he takes his disciples and he pulls them away. Now, in the area that Jesus had done most of his teaching, people would begin to ask a couple of things. One is the regular people of the day were saying, hey, let's make this Jesus guy king. They've been waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting for someone who come in would be the king. And they would have this nationalism and he would raise them up to the prominence of King David in the old days. That that's what most of the Jewish people were hoping for, praying for, and asking for, is who's the next King David? Who's going to bring the nation of Israel to great prominence? And so they were asking that. Well, the religious leaders were on the other side, and they'd seen that here's this Jesus guy teaching with great authority. Well, they was pulling away from their authority, pulling away from who they were, and so they were in the midst of plotting to kill him and to get rid of him. So you have these two ideas. One is wanting to make him king, and then the other one, they're trying to get rid of him. So in the midst of this kind of chaos and what's going on, Jesus takes his 12 disciples away up north to the mouth of the Jordan River to a city called Caesarea Philippi. And so if you look at that word, Caesarea Philippi, Caesar is the first word, and Philippi is the second. So Philip, who was a leader of the day, he was a Jewish leader. He was the son of Herod the Great. He had created this city he had renamed it for himself and for caesar and one because every king they want people to remember him so you name a city after yourself right so if you would become king of lagrange you would make it whatever your name is so people would remember you previous to this the town name the city name had been pantheus and the reason the city name had been pantheus was because it was a great place of worship of the god of pan the roman and greek god of pan and so the god of nature and so there was pantheistic worship there was pan worship going on and then if you've heard a little bit about the bible there was this other worship called baal worship and so there was also baal worship going on in this city called caesarea philippi so imagine with me the city up on a hill that had been renamed caesarea philippi and there's baal worship going on which is a god of fertility so you can imagine all the different things of worship that was a part of that you've got the god of pan of nature and all the different worship but then also Philip created a 
temple for the seas for Caesar, for people to come and to worship and to pay homage and to worship Caesar. So he built this great white temple with white columns and this so people could come in and worship up on a hill. So whenever you come up and you see Caesarea Philippi, the first thing you see is Philip's temple that he's built to worship Caesar. So here Jesus brings in his disciples to probably the most religious, spiritual place in the world, and they don't really know a whole lot about Jesus. And even here, this is also the mouth of the Jordan River. So imagine this. You've got Baal worship, you've got Pan worship, you've got Caesar worship, and then also right here is the mouth of the Jordan River, which we understand that throughout history that's been important to Jewish history. And so all of this spirituality is a part of this city, and Jesus brings his disciples on a spiritual retreat to get away from everything, to kind of just see where they're at. Because Jesus has been Jesus. We've had all these miracles, and now he's pulling them away. People want to make him king. People want to get rid of him because he's, he teaches with too much authority. And so now he's at a place, he's saying, listen, we disciples, you've been with me for a little bit. You've kind of gotten to see behind the scenes, and we've had a lot of dinners together, a lot of fellowships together. We've gone to, to the country club. We've had time together. You know me. If anyone knows me, you know me. So let's pull away together and just spend some time. And so here we are in Matthew chapter 16. That's your setting. The most spiritual place in the world. They don't know Jesus. And Jesus asks this question of his disciples. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? See, even this title here in the midst of this was a title that he wasn't claiming to be God. He never claimed himself to be God. And so people were making claims for him, but he's saying, who is the, the son of man? You disciples, who are people saying that I am? And so the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, right, who was a forerunner, so a prophet before the Messiah comes. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so here Jesus asks this question, who, who, who do the people say I am? Remember, because they've been trying to make him king. But all the murmurings, as the, as the disciples go around and they listen to what's happening, what people are saying, the people, the Jewish people in particular, were giving Jesus the highest possible title that they could possibly humanly give him. As they were saying, hey, listen, you are the greatest of the prophets. Because see, it hadn't crossed their mind that he could be God in the flesh. So they were looking at this guy, this great teacher, and they're saying, everything we see about Jesus is he's just as prophetic. He's just as great as John the Baptist. He's just as great as Jeremiah. He's just as great as all these other prophets. And so we see him in the line of those prophets. So in their human understanding, they had a grasp of this Jesus guy, there's something extra special about him, which is kind of obvious. He just fed 5,000 and he's walked on water. How many of you did that this week? Okay, not many of us. So they're getting it. They're not the smartest guys, but they're getting it. Hey, there's something extra special. We're hearing this. And here's the next thing. Jesus says this. But what about you? He asks. Who do you say I am? See, he's getting real personal in this moment. He gathered around and said, hey, who are people saying that I am? And they're, they're reporting back the news. And then Jesus in this moment in their spiritual retreat says, yeah, but you guys. You guys that have spent the last few years with me, who do you say that I am? And here's Peter. Peter is the guy that if anybody's going to talk first, it's Peter. He's the guy that's going to jump off the zip line first. He's the guy that's going to high dive first. He's going to bungee jump. He does things before thinking, okay? He's type A to the max, racing cars, doing whatever he can possibly do 
to have fun. (laughs) Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds to that and says, hey, the only way that you can know that is if God himself revealed that to you. So in this moment, God, Jesus pulls away his disciples. They've been doing life together for quite a while and miracles have been happening. Can you imagine the chaos? Imagine the chaos of Jesus feeding 5,000 people and, and the disciples are the only ones that kind of know that, hey, one, there's, there's 5,000 plus people. They were only counting men, so there was women and children, so there was quite a few other people. And so the disciples know that Jesus took two fish and five loaves of bread and prayed over it and fed over 5,000 people. So as they're collecting baskets, I'm sure they're thinking, how in the world did this happen? And so they were already in that meeting. There were murmurings of, hey, this, let's make this guy king. And so as we talked about last week, he sent his disciples away so they wouldn't be carried up in that. And, and then Jesus walks on water. And, and so just imagine being a part of that 12 and taking this in and thinking, who is this guy? And here they are in this spiritual retreat, the most spiritual place in the world, pulls them away, and Jesus asks that question, who do you? Where they're worshiping the nature God, where they're worshiping the fertility God, where there's so much history of the Jewish history. They're here worshiping Caesar. In the midst of all this, you've spent all this time with me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, hearing from God, says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, which was a term that for the Jewish people in particular, mean that you are the king that's going to reign, not just here, but forever. You are the one that the Father has sent for us to save us from ourselves. Who do you say that I am? For the people lifted up Jesus as high as they could possibly lift him up. As a part of the story of, of Lee Strobel, one of the things that he began through his struggle and through his strife and through his looking for answers, is he began as a... Um, as a lawyer, as a journalist, began to break down the evidence and began to say, okay, what are the questions that I need to ask? What are the things that I need to look for? And so he, he, under, he had a basic understanding of who Jesus was, and he just had this idea of he was just this made-up person. He may or may not even been a historical figure or not. And so he began to break down the evidence. And so for him, for Lee Strobel, one of the things that he looked at was the evidence of eyewitnesses. And so you can see through the New Testament as he began to break down some of the stuff that, hey, the eyewitness accounts were credible accounts because in court, in Jewish court, you needed to have three people for it to be viable, for someone to count as an eyewitness. And he had more, Jesus had more than three eyewitness accounts, not only of his ministry and of his life and his teaching, but also of his resurrection. So whenever Jesus came back to life, there were multiple accounts. And so one of the reasons that these accounts are in here that sometimes don't make sense to us, it made sense to the early crowd, is that Jesus was validating and verifying who he was and validating his ministry, validating the healing. And he was saying, hey, listen, I know that I just healed you. I know that just these, these demons have just left. Don't tell anyone else. There's verification already. But if you've, had, if you've been healed from something, are you going to stop from telling people? No. Right? Some of you are still, still asleep. Okay, here we go. Join with me this morning. So there's eyewitness evidence. There's document evidence. The Iliad. How many of y'all were forced to read Homer's Iliad back in the day? Some of you didn't go to schools that read. Okay. So those of you that went to schools that forced you to read. I mean, I remember having to read King Arthur and all those fun things. And you're like, oh, my gosh. So the Iliad. 
So there are 650 documents, verified documents of the Iliad. But the closest one to the original document has been verified at over a thousand years separated from the original document. So Homer sat down one day and, uh, while watching The Simpsons, and as he was watching The Simpsons, he wrote the Iliad, okay? So he's got the Iliad, this huge document, and so people are reading it, and it's a thousand years, and no one questions the validity of the copies, even though it's a thousand years separated. We have no idea of what the original document looked like, but we take it on somebody that, that wrote this a thousand years later. Listen, documents of the New Testament, we have documents that, are, that were written that we have found that were around and still in the time and the life of John the Apostle. Over 5,000 documents that we now have through archaeological evidence that put it within the time of John or within the first generation of Christians. We have more evidence of the stories here than any other book, any other thing ever written. We have the evidence that this is, this was not changed. There's not a whole lot of stuff going on. This is the real deal. And so when it stacks up against every other historical document, nothing even comes close to it. Jesus is, every time that there's archaeological evidence dug up, and you have stories from the Genesis through the maps, every single time backs up what's written. Because there's always questions of, hey, did these guys just make this up? What are these stories? Did they make, get facts wrong? And as we begin to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the levels of the tells, that's what they're called, those big things that they find, they dig deeper into the tells, every single time so far it has backed up this what the authors have had. So there's evidence after evidence that these guys weren't making up stories. We just didn't know, so we doubt and begin to ask those questions. So as we begin to dig deeper and deeper and deeper, there's more and more evidence that these authors are telling the same thing. Even Luke, there's some places where there was questions about the author of Luke, who he was, and if he had said some things kind of out of date. And even in the last um, few years, they found markings in the cities in Corinth and other places. They found markings that back up some of the words that he used some of the titles that Luke gives. And again, all it does is validates the truth and the worthiness of the authors and the one that we know, I believe, that's inspired this work. And so again, every time that we find more evidence, it backs up and supports, hey, this isn't just some random book with some guys that had this guy that were falling around and they're trying to support this. I mean, listen, these first 12 men, 11 men, gave their lives for what they believed happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that means they were super convinced that something happened. I mean, they saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus feed the 5,000, feed the 4,000. They saw Jesus tell the demons to get out of a person and go into pigs and to run into... Listen, I don't quite understand and fathom that. I've got secondhand knowledge, but these guys are willing to go to their deathbed for this guy and for this truth. It's part of the evidence for us to understand. What are you, what is it going to take for us to give our life for something. And these men all stood up. The cross, the crucifixion, the evidence that no one would ever be able to survive, the most excruciating death that you can possibly have. And this is, again, you know, Jesus, whenever he came to earth, we understand that he came, and he came in the lowliest way that he could come. He was born in a stable or born in a cave with animals. It's not the birthplace of a king. It's not the hospital that everyone would think that the king would be, would be born, the king of the universe, the king of all kings. He was born in a stable. And then his life is pretty much as an adult lives as a homeless person going from house to house being taken care of. And at the very end, at his death, he's put to death on the cross. So a Roman citizen 
would not have been put to death on a cross. They were too worthy. They were, had too much um, value. And so only the thieves and the lowest of criminals, the lowest of people, would be put on a cross. And so Jesus put himself, allowed himself to be put on a cross and experienced an excruciating death. That word excruciating, have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard of the word excruciating? You know where that comes from? The cross. There wasn't a word that expressed the pain of the cross enough so that the word excruciating was invented because of that moment when the nails went through his wrist right here, touches a nerve, and so that nerve is continually in pain and it's excruciating. How many of you have ever done this and you're like, wham, and you hit the funny bone and it's not funny? You know what I mean? Okay? And so it hurts, right? It tingles and it hurts and it causes numbness. Doctors say that the nerve that's right here, that when it's pierced, it's that excruciating that it's the funny bone times a thousand constantly. Okay? He'd already been beaten and now he's getting pierced through here. So that excruciating pain, so every time that he's pulling up, it's constant. He's pulling up and he's moving that. And imagine, and so even in everything about that was medically is crazy because of the beating that he took, he would have had to be thirsty. And so what does he say on the, on the cross? He says, I thirst, right? So one, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, but also it's a practical thing. He had to take in because of the beating. He was losing liquid. And so the very last thing, about the cross is that he was pierced through a sword on the side and whenever it went pierced through it would have pierced his heart because of the story of one disciple John was there and as he was pierced through there was water and there was blood that came out every single doctor in the last 50 60 years that studied that and has understood what happens to the body said that he was pierced through when it was pierced it pierced his heart and pierced the, the sack around his heart and when it pierced that was the water that was around the heart and the blood that came out and what John saw was that Jesus in that moment would have died, that that spear would have pierced his heart and the water and the blood of the heart would have come out. Because there's been so many people that have tried to to pass this off, that Jesus didn't really die, that he just kind of fell asleep for a little bit. Listen, every single medical doctor that understands the crucifixion studied and read the scripture, they said there's no doubt. One, that it was an excruciating pain and that that reason that someone else had to carry their cross was because of the beating and the flesh that had been hanging out. But in that moment that he was speared, he died. But that wasn't the end. The next evidence is after a few days, he was up and he was walking around and he was talking. And what did he do? He was eating and drinking and saying, hey, touch this. Why? Because God in his understanding and knowledge is that man's going to try to explain it away and In that, he's saying, listen, touch and feel. This is the truth. I was on the cross, experienced the physical pain, see the scars. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I have won victory over this. Again, evidence. Time after time, there were eyewitnesses to the fact. There were eyewitnesses of Jesus walking around. Who do you say I am? And in this moment at the crucifixion, we only see one disciple. Everyone else split. And listen, I'm with him. I I probably would have been gone if I'd have been dead because resurrection hadn't happened yet. I hadn't seen that, and I've been around some stuff. But if you're going to present me with life and death situation, I'm going to choose life. And so 10 of the 11 that were still left took off, and one stood 
And he was the youngest one, and I, as I probably forgot, he's probably not smart enough to know that there's danger. He's probably a teenager, and that prefrontal cortex hasn't figured out that, hey, this is some serious stuff, okay? Why are all the wives looking at their husbands? <laughs> you haven't figured it out yet? And so there's danger. Evidence, time after time after time. The second thing I want you to see is that our discovery of Jesus must be personal. Our discovery of Jesus must be personal. There's all kinds of evidence. I can give you all kinds of evidence every single day, every week. It's continuing to add up. We just found evidence that there was a, um, that there was a, a leader called Joseph during the time in Egypt, during a certain dynasty that he was in. They found him in the back room of a museum. Okay, and the coins are dated. I mean, it's, it's just amazing how this stuff is being revealed over and over and over again that verifies this and validates that those of us that say that this is life-giving that continually backs it up. But listen, I can give you all that stuff, but this question that Jesus asked his disciples, he's asking us today, he's saying, who do you, who do you say that I am? His disciples walked with him and saw all of this. And they sat in the most spiritual place in the world that really they probably had heard rumblings of Jesus. But how could Jesus, the one that had just walked on water, that just found 5,000, how could he walk into a town and people not congregate around him? The most spiritual place in the world and he walks in their midst and they don't even recognize him. So he's got his group around him. He says, who do you say that I am? And God reveals to Peter in that moment, you, no doubt, you are the I am. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Who do you say that he is? I can give you evidence after evidence after evidence, but who do you? One of the things that on the on our Puerto Rico mission trip, there's a young lady um, named Alva. And Alva, I think, is 24, 25. She grew up in inner city L.A., came to know Christ when she was there. But in her coming to know Christ, she began to change, began to transform. That's one of the things that happens when you come to know Christ and the Spirit of God deposits himself with inside of you. You begin to transform from the inside out. You see things differently. You, you think things differently. You're, everything begins to change. And so she began to have that transformation in inner city L.A. high school. So you can imagine, it was quite a change. And so all of her friends are like, hey, Alva, I don't know what's changing in you. I can see radical change in you. And some of it, most of it, I don't like. And so over a period of time, about a year, she began to, to kind of, you know what, I, I kind of wish I had my friends. I kind of wish I liked what, where I was at with my friends. I didn't like all of it, but I liked that I had friends. And so she said, hey, after about a year, I began to, to get back into the ways of how I'd been, and I hated it, but I needed my friends. And so after her graduation, she slipped away from L.A., and her brother brought her here to Texas. And after a couple of years, she had an opportunity at a camp or a retreat with some college students. And she said, I went from just accepting Christ and the truths and the evidence to meeting him, to knowing him. And listen, for our teenagers that were there, that was impactful. Because listen, I, there's a huge difference between accepting 
the truths of who Jesus is. You can say, who do you say I am? And you can say, he's the Messiah, the anointed one. But then there's this next thing that happens at some point that you move from just accepting him to meeting him. And that when you meet with him, man, it is transformational for you. So I was said, man, I met him. And it changed everything. Who do you say I am? I pray this morning, if you've never accepted and said, hey, you are the Messiah, I pray that today is that day. Or maybe you're at a place where you're saying, hey, I've been in church, I've been doing church, I've accepted him, I know the truth, I've, I've got it, I understand it, but I haven't met him. I don't long to sit down with him and to, and to thirst and to, to get to know him and understand. I don't have that desire to say, Jesus, here's who I am and where I'm at and what I'm struggling with, and to develop that relationship. Because the longer you spend time with him and meeting with him, the more you want to do that. Because that develops that love relationship. The more you reveal about who yourself is. And listen, all of us struggle. Every one of us want to walk into this room and say, people say, hey, there's Chris, hey, there's John, there's Mike, there's whoever. We want that people to know us in that way, but we don't want people to, to know us, hey, that's Chris, and I know this, this, and this about him. Listen, that's the beauty of walking with Jesus. He's already known it. He's not surprised by your junk. He took it on the cross. He knew it when he was on the cross, and he loves you, and he still offers you a gift, and he's saying, listen, I want to relieve you of the guilt and the shame and the regret, because Romans 8.38 tells us, therefore... Because of all this stuff that Jesus has done, therefore there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That guilt and that shame, that's not from Jesus. <laughs> that's usually from your friends or from us. Our own stuff, our own religious laws and stuff that we brought up. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Who do you say I am? You say that he's the Messiah and you accept him as Lord. There is, there is no condemnation for you have freedom in Christ. And what a beauty that is to sit across from someone who does not judge you. But you see in them who you want to be and a desire to grow and to look more and more like Jesus every day. Listen, I challenge you. I don't know if you're a reader or not. Get the audio book. Get the Kindle version. Whatever. Get the case for Christ, study it and read it, and listen, it will help you, nothing else, it will help you in your own faith, but also help you when your friends that don't know Jesus ask you questions. It's a great read. It's truly just his story. It's, he talks to PhDs and crazy off-the-chart smart guys, but he puts it down at Chris Little level, okay? Seriously. So if I can read it, you can read it. My challenge for you today, believe says here in uh, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So if you haven't believed, believe. Study it. Know it. Second thing is to receive it. Jesus has the done plan. He's already done it for you. All other religions, I don't like to call Christianity religion, but all other faiths, they have a you get to keep working on it plan. Some of you have even grown up in some Christian denominations and sects, and they will even have a continue-to-work-on-it plan. Listen, the gospel is this. Jesus died for you, and if you say yes to it, it's done. 
You cannot earn it. Quit trying to earn it and fall in love with Jesus. It will change the way that you view things. You need, we need more grace. The more that I'm amazed by God's grace, the more willing I'm to pass it on to other people. Be amazed by it. So believe, receive, become. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, literally, if your location is in him, and if he is located in you through the Spirit of God, your location is in him, then you are a new creation. You've been melted down, and the Spirit of God is in place within you, and you are brought back. And on the outside, people may see Chris, but on the inside, there's a transformation. I was even talking to a parent today that they're saying, hey, my child has come back different from Puerto Rico, and because they've made a decision to not just meet Jesus, but to accept and, and meet him and to know him, to become intimate with him. And they're like, man, they're, everything about my child is radically different. Why? Not because they want to behave, because they're getting more, uh, what do you call that stuff, money. I don't know because I don't have any more money. It's because they've experienced and tasted Jesus. And it's transforming from the inside out. And so they see even their parents differently not as the enemies, but as loving people guiding them along the way. Do the research. Make a decision. Recommit. Who do you say I am? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. For the opportunity to answer that question, who do you say I am? We're undeserving. but you give us that opportunity. And Father, we have even more evidence than even your disciples. Even though they lived through it, Father, we have even more and more and more evidence that you're real, that you walked us and you accomplished all these things, that all the stories of the Old Testament are being backed up by archaeological evidence and science. And and that's, God, you're giving that to us because that's who we are right now as, as a culture is we need facts, facts, facts so that we can step into faith. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that's searching and researching that they continue to do that because, as it says, those who seek out the truth, you will find it. Father, Caesarea Philippi has been radically changed in the generation since that. And Lord, that's what you're about. As those that are seeking, you will find. They will find you and be transformed. Who do we say you are? It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.